Hey guys, it's nice to see everyone, uh, albeit masked, slightly distanced, and a lot of our brothers and sisters who are online, I can't see. Uh, but uh, we make do with what we can, and you know, there's some people who think we're being overcautious. And I want everyone here to remember who, ha who here has brought a baby home from the hospital. Uh, a newborn baby home from the hospital before. Uh, who, in looking back, believes they were slightly insane with how worried they were for that baby and keeping them safe? My earliest memory is my dad bringing my, uh, when my sister came home from the hospital, my dad's, one of his catchphrases is you always need to contemplate the worst case scenario and beat it before it happens. And he was a little bit neurotic that way, but it really helped me. Uh, but I want you to think of, as we grow closer to Jesus, we see we will get closer and closer as we become more human. Because we're on a spectrum. Uh, humans are mammals, and humans are image bearers of God. And Jesus is the ultimate human. So in our life, we're either becoming more Jesus-y, which is human, or becoming more mammalian, which is beastly, or mark of the beast, you know, this idea. And uh, the more Jesus we become, instead of just caring for our kids, which even, you know, uh, dogs, lions, tigers, and bears care for their kids, because it's biological imperative, but as we become more Jesus-y, we care for everyone else, like they're our children. Meaning we develop a tender love. And the closer we get to God, the less we're concerned about Darwinistic imperatives like personal safety or uh, prosperity while others suffer. The more like Jesus we become, the more our affections and emotional vulnerability grows. Now how this applies to our COVID protocols is when I think of the courage that comes in Christ, it's not courage to say... Um, uh, I'm not going to take every precaution not to hurt someone else. Uh, it's, not, it's not courage to say uh, that I'm not worried about this. And I, I'm not worried about COVID, to be quite honest. The thing I would be concerned about was would I ever be a partner in someone else's suffering instead of would I be a partner in someone else's healing? Because that's our Jesus vocation, right? So I'm not a scientist. I don't know everything. But I do know, as we find out, is the more cautious people cause less harm to others than the less cautious people. And I don't need a PhD in molecular biology and everything else, even they're having a hard time getting their head around this, to know, hey, let's, let's do a, let's distance, let's wear masks, let's have filters, let's uh, create a whole new industry in our country where all the moonshiners turn to sanitizer makers, right? So I just want to say that is when we, I actually, that um, little device we made and some scientists came up, that loud air filter, uh, I said, you know, this is an icon of God. And what I meant by this is this is a symbol that reminds us that human life is precious at every stage. And to me, so I think of the parable of the air filter, you know, anything that emphasizes the preciousness of human life. And by the way, if you think we're way over uh, uh, protective and cautious and whatnot, a lot of those people have actually kind of uh, 
kicked our church to the curb. But if you think that, let, I want to tell you something. I love you and you're precious. Uh, anyway. So, um, I'm not standing. I might stand a little, Dave. I want to sit. I, uh, I want to just be really uh, kind of transparent with you guys. And it's weird because with this, I'm being transparent with the internet as well. You know, I, I, have a, I know a number of people have canceled every kind of social networking account because they believe the government is listening in. By the way, I believe they probably are too, and I'm hoping the people listening in get saved. You know, I think we should all live lives like we're under constant surveillance, and it might be a blessing to someone because of it. I, I, I'd rather have Jesus than liberty, but that's just, you know what I mean? I have all the liberty I need is in Jesus already, whether I'm in Cambodia or here, so... I, uh, but I do want to be transparent with you. I am not a guy that remembers my dreams. Um, I rarely have dreams. And if I do wake up with dreams, it's really significant. And except, it's weird, the other day I had a dream where I woke up, because I, I told some people about this, uh, I woke up with the funniest joke I've ever heard or experienced. Like, it, I, I woke up laughing in a shock because it was so funny. But, but mostly my dreams are either really poignant or very uh, tormenting. And I've had four dreams in my life that have particularly tormented me. And one of them I goes back to five years old and I'll never forget it. I'll share you, I'm not going to share my recent dream, but I'll share you my five-year-old dream. And the five-year-old dream is I, my favorite thing was hugging my parents and being with them. We were very much a sloppy, Greek, huggy, kissy, wrestling, laughing together family. And... This dream was this weird science fiction dream where I woke up in a world where everything was colored blue, black, and white, like this crystal world where everyone was like these crystal beings. I mean, you can now do it with CGI. And my mom and dad were crystal, and I was the only like fleshy being. And my mom and dad had lost, lost all their emotional kindness and warmth. It was like this cold, icy world where everyone was real unemotional, uh, not emotionally present, and I'm like this kind of uh, kid on the spectrum that really needs tight hugs often. And I, I was terrified because I kept looking for my mom, and I found my mom, and she was like this cold bean. And uh, I don't think anyone's here today who ever even met my mom, but she's like one of the warmest people in the world, very huggy. And uh, I had no place. So that was a dream, and that was a uh, a horrifying dream. My other dream was that my mom died when I was young, and that actually happened. And uh, I won't go into the third dream, and then this dream I had, and re it's weird because I know dreams happen very quickly, but Adrian knew part of the dream because apparently I was talking in my sleep at four in the morning, like yelling and stuff, and I woke up uh, at uh, seven this morning in the same deal. So every time I would wake up in the night, I'd go back into it. All that to say is the content of the dream, I believe, was a spiritual attack based on resisting this idea that's been burning in my heart to be sharing with you over and over. And I, Adrian, as I shared with Adrian elements of it, I didn't want to go into great detail because even verbalizing it is painful. And I'd want to verbalize, like, Jesus loves me, this I know, with, you know, because neurological formation and all that. 
But I was thinking about the elements of this dream, and this dream was the tailor-made attack to take the wind out of my sails to share with you what I'm sharing with you today. And by the way, I am not sharing anything complicated today at all. All right, so I'm not trying to build up this thing. But it is one of those things that if I had one thing to say that people would remember, and I knew I was going to die tomorrow, this would be one of those things. All right? And it's a message in my life that is not a new message, but it's something that has been growing stronger and stronger through every crisis and every hardship. And it's basically Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves us. This I know for the Spirit tells us so. And the reason I want to share this is we're not unique in church history. I've studied so much church history, and there's been so many atrocities committed in the name of Jesus to the point where you could look at how we tell church history and have a good argument to not believe in God. Or, but what I found is, you know what's wrong with the way we tell church history? Or how people do history in general? We talk about who went to war with who, who was president, king, or prime minister, we tell, who was the richest, wealthiest, most influential person. History is told by the exact opposite group of people than Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. And the church has often highlighted our history by who was Pope, who led the reformation of this place, who did this, who did that. And frankly, when people get to the most power, Lord Acton, a really good church historian once said, uh, he was a church historian, he was talking about corruption in the Renaissance Vatican. In describing that, he said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you know what does not corrupt? The foot-washing savior who makes room, who uh, the most beleaguered and insecure and hurting will brave the crowds of the people who shame them to get up front to see that savior. So I began restudying church history, but I began looking, because I began with this presupposition that if this story of Jesus is still being told 2,000 years later, when archaeologists have to barely parse together what the other stories from the time of Jesus were telling, this story has gone viral where every other story we have piecemeal. It's like the epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, we found another chapter. But we know the Jesus story. And fast forward from Christian history to today, um, I, can't, I cannot believe all the people who consider themselves the deepest committed Christians who are repeating anti-Christ statements or applauding. There was a rally not too long ago where I would say probably 95% of the young people at this rally would have identified as evangelical committed Christians. And at that rally, this poor deluded gentleman, well, not a gentleman's a stretch, but poor deluded precious child of God, who I hope gets known someday, basically uttered this statement. He says, the you know, turning the other cheek has got us nowhere. Turning the other cheek has got us nowhere. And that statement was not met with protest, walkouts, or don't talk that way about my Jesus. It was lauded. And actually, I know people that were, uh, who go to this specific series of rallies. I don't want to give too much details because I don't want to glorify it. And I've realized that 
I equate so many elements of Christendom with bullying. And, what, and being a kid, growing up as a special needs kid, in a more primitive time, you know, a Gen Xer, not a millennial or a Xenial, but a Gen Xer where uh, it was kind of, we were shamed in some ways unintentionally based on our weirdness. Growing up that way, uh, I've noticed that in so many elements of Christendom, all I see is bullying. And it, what's probably saved my faith is being, realizing I'm a part of a global family and being uh, in a family that really partnered in cross-cultural mission work since my parents found Jesus and the grandfather and parents. That, that was their life. They, none of them were technically missionaries, but it was their life partnering with the mission of God. So I got to interact almost my entire childhood with followers of Jesus and pastors from different cultures that weren't uh, wealthy, powerful people of influence, but they were actually in cultures and from places that, you know, influential people in America would call poophole countries, you know? But interacting with those people is why I cannot be, I'm not an atheist, because I saw the Jesus story enacted by people, and they've assisted me in this journey to know Jesus better. All right? So I realized that my version of Christianity, I mean, I grew up with, one of the reasons I, uh, I've always had this witness of real Jesus, even through brokenness in my life, because I had a clinically depressed, mentally ill mom who prayed for me every day and loved everyone unconditionally. And despite the fact that people would have looked at her and if she would have not been a total introvert, a lot of people would have known and maybe looked down on her. But seeing the witness of Jesus in my mom and my dad and uh, kept me from losing my faith just because they were living the Jesus drama. So we've been reading Galatians, and this ties into this. We've been reading Galatians, and Paul is angry in Galatians. Paul is angry in Galatians. And the thing is, the problem with Galatians is most of us, if we've heard Galatians taught, have read Galatians from a 500-year-old cultural response and application of Galatians, and not a 2,000-year-old context and response to Galatians. The book of Galatians was not written to the Reformation-era Vatican. The book of Galatians was not written to Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the like. The book of Galatians was written to these people called the Galatians, who were having people destroying their joy. And Paul's anger was because people were shaming people, others, into embracing a system over a story. He, people were being shamed to the point of adults were saying, well, if you're really a good person, uh, you 40-year-old person in this church, we're going to have to circumcise you. And I tell you, you know, we talk about uh, people feeling, oh, wow, looks like our camera is off again. Oh, well. Is the red mean off? Oh, red means good. Okay. Uh, I'm a little paranoid about technology, too. Um, but Paul was angry in the same way a mom would be angry if her kid came home from school crying because the teacher was abusive towards that kid and told that kid that they were a failure and shamed them to the point where that kid was self-harming. 
Imagine if you had a child that based on an encounter with an influencer or a teacher in their life that came home and you found out they started cutting because of this teacher. Which is a, I'm not a remote stretch with the anger that Paul has in Galatians. Not, and Paul, even uh, some people I really admire, they view Paul as having a totally separate message from Jesus. And the breakthrough with me with Paul is one of, going through one of my down periods of life, I felt the Lord speak to me, and I barely felt I was hearing anything from God at all, but listen to a gospel every morning. And audio Bibles, the people speak slower than I talk and slower than I think, so I usually would turn it up twice as fast. So I spent several months listening to a gospel every single day, presuming Jesus was the kindest person who walked the earth and reading it through that lens. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it took anywhere from 20 minutes to 40 minutes every morning. But between that and good physical medical care, it was keeping me alive. And then as I spent the last about 15 years studying this thing called the New Perspectives on Paul, which made this audacious idea that what if we look at Paul in the context of first century Judaism, of which we have more research having been done now than in the last previous 1900 years combined, in presuming that Paul was in love with the gospel stories and what Paul was writing were the footnotes of application to the gospels. Because frankly, Paul doesn't work without the gospels. Now, Paul wrote his letters before the gospels, but there was the moral stories that became compiled into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were on the lips of everyone. These guys knew those stories better than someone who is a Star Wars fan who's watched the original trilogy several times a year since 1978. They knew the stories of Jesus because not only were they thrilling stories, but they were stories that told of people who lived in a worthless uh, treatment environment find out they were of invaluable worth. So imagine these thrilling stories that actually changed your whole view of yourself. And so when I would read Paul, I'd say, if I'm reading Paul and I get any other picture of Jesus, then I'm reading it through Reformation or the Counter-Reformation area or something else or through my own broken elements of my childhood or being bullied by people in authority. I'm reading Paul through the bully perspective, not the Jesus loves me perspective. So I'm going to teach on Galatians today by not even opening the book of Galatians. Because you can't teach Paul's writings without going back and forth to the gospel. So um, I'm going to read a story. In this story, I mean, I, I just had to choose a story because there's a lot of stories in them that are gospels. And what I love is each, when, a gospel appear, when a story appears in each gospel, they're all a little different for the most part. Because I know uh, when Ian and Kathleen would listen to a story that we would tell them, different details would become more important to each of them than the other. They would overlap and highlight. And if you have the same true story of something we taught, experienced or told our kids about, each of them tell the story differently. And it's really fun to reminisce that way. And the Gospels are the same way. One way to know it's propaganda meant to manipulate, if all stories are in perfect harmony, 
you know that people are being coercively led by some person behind the curtain who's trying to commit fraud or control people. The diversity of the gospel accounts are actually very much like our dinner tables might be with our family reminiscing. So this story is one of my favorites, but I say that almost every Sunday before I read. So this is Luke 18, 15 through 17. One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering them. Then Jesus called for the children and said to his disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to these who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Now Luke's a little less on the emotional details of the story. I believe it's Mark and Matthew, I think, mentioned that Jesus was irate or he was incensed. This is one of those, we think gentle Jesus, uh, meek and mild, and I think kind and gentle but I, and meek, but I don't think he was mild. I don't think, I don't think Jesus was neutral-tasting cold oatmeal. Jesus was dynamic and challenging, and it's very important to notice when Jesus gets mad. Because in the whole world of anger, in most forms of anger we sin, but there's tiny little sliver of the world of anger. It's a little suburb, it's a little village of anger called righteous anger. And this is the anger that we see in Jesus. Which Jesus wasn't becoming like, uh, uh, you know, can I please talk to your manager? You know, Jesus wasn't expressing his anger towards powerless people that incensed him. Jesus' anger was reserved for the powerful people who used their influence to keep people from experiencing love. In fact, when you read almost any book, and a couple of pe- recent people have done this, but if you re- who here has read Nietzsche's Will to Power or Nietzsche's Antichrist? Anyone, or or uh, Beyond Good and Evil, actually. Will to Power is Beyond Good or Nietzsche. Anyone read Nietzsche's Antichrist? It's so bizarre because Nietzsche and Paul agree right in the first chapter. Uh, Nietzsche basically says, now some, and by the way, the chapters are really short. You know, all these people quote Nietzsche and think, oh, what a brilliant philosopher. I said, dude, Nietzsche writes for dummies. I lo- and he's a brilliant, I love it. I mean, Nietzsche's helped my faith. Because God is dead. <laughs> Nietzsche, Nietzsche is dead God, as if somehow that's a triumph. It's like, here's what I know about Nietzsche. He grew up as a pastor's kid and really loved Jesus and had his heart broken. So I believe... I don't believe you can wash Jesus off you no matter how hard you try. So I look forward to ways he hands and worship in heaven, in new heavens and new earth with Nietzsche, together with all the people who wore those t-shirts mocking Nietzsche who hadn't read him. Anyway, Nietzsche said this. He said, uh, the philosophy of uh, Christianity is mercy to the weak. And the way the world works is power to the strong. These things do not work together. I'm like, praise God. It kind of reminds me of Romans 12, where it says, do not be conformed to the pattern we would call operating system of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So uh, Paul makes it clear that the gospel doesn't work with our default settings. 
it resets us. And in the same way that poor son of a powerful bankrupt man said, uh, turning the other cheek has got us nowhere, I said, it would if you know Jesus. It's got me everywhere. I don't think I'd be alive, let alone talking to you today, if it wasn't, wasn't for the turning the cheek Savior. Because I'll tell you, Jesus, Christian bureaucracies are not, are not attractive. The, the only time I received physical abuse from an adult was, was, was from a person who literally founded a Christian school. The only time I was ever called as a child uh, obscenity in a slur, not a cuss word, but a slur, uh, by an uh, adult was a Christian leader. But I happen to have a mom and dad who told me Jesus stories. And I'll tell you what, a little bit of Jesus can take care of a lot, a lot, a lot of badness. So this is one of the stories I hold in my mind. Because when I read Jesus and he seems to be saying something angry, if I presume everything Jesus did is reflected in that story, when he says something that seems like off-putting, I imagine him being satirical. Like there's a woman who, uh, 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 a Syrophoenician woman, or I, I might be mixed up, comes to Jesus and asks for healing. And Jesus goes, why should we feed the children's food to the dogs? And she immediately snaps back at him and goes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. Now, I've known people where this has been a crisis of faith story because they read it through the lens of grumpy Christians. And they imagine that Jesus wasn't like, keep in mind, Something, some way that Jesus taught meant the general shamed and disregarded people would brave the shamers and the powerful and break through the crowds that hated them to get a front row seat to Jesus. Who here has ever felt they needed to hide because of shame and avoided certain social situations? Anyone? What is it about Jesus' way of being and teaching that the broken will risk the crowds and the leaders in ditch, in line, to hear Jesus. So this woman would not have braved Jesus through all the judgmental poopy faces if she didn't know, I know my Jesus. So Jesus addressed, this is how reading the whole Gospels over and over, and not these little verse-by-verse deals, but marinating in the Gospels, your brain gets trained better than a lot of theologians who spent their life outlining and diagramming the sentences of the Gospels in the original Greek. I did that. Well, actually, I couldn't do Luke because it was too complicated. But John and Mark are kind of easy to uh, translate if you're a C-minus student in Greek. All right? So I did all that and never once. It was helpful. But in looking at the little dots in the painting, I never saw the, impression, the, the giant impressionist masterpiece of God's love. And I've literally run in, I, I met a man who was in charge of a very well-regarded seminary, who led a seminary. We're talking, and this guy, literally, I felt, I felt like this old man, I felt like I wanted to be his daddy in a, an appropriate way. I felt like, this guy doesn't know how beautiful Jesus is, and he doesn't know that God just wants to hug him while he's being a jerk and just calm him down. And this guy has got so much more knowledge than I could ever hope to have. But a child and our kids that gather up here. I, so one of my favorite things lately has been when you get the one or two most disruptive kids at Central Vineyard. 
uh, feel a level of safety that when all these big adults who are socially overwhelming, that they feel so safe that they're going to jump up on the uh, stage and start vandalizing things because it's just like being at home. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me through that very disconcerting event and says, this is how the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is a place of safety where the disruptive kids want to go to church because they know not only am I going to have my parents love me, but a whole bunch of big people. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just be a messy church as long as we are here because that... Never trust a grumpy theologian. Never trust a grumpy theologian because even though they may know the facts, they'll infect you with a demonic, whether literally or figuratively, obstruction field. So the question is this. When we read Paul or when we read the Bible, it is like a Rorschach test. You know, when psychoanalysis was a thing and people would look at blobs and what do you see? And I, I see my mother beating me. Or I see, you know, Optimus Prime, you know, or whatever. You learn about the person based on what they see. And the idea is what someone says in response to that picture doesn't really say anything about that picture, but it says a lot about them. And what it says about them is when you read the Bible and you default to angry, shaming Jesus, it says a lot about your first formation as a person. Listen, when our sponge brains are living with mom and dad and experiencing all kinds of life, so much of us is created in our childhood. And listen, almost all of us have had the most beautifully well-meaning parents. But if they're like anything like me, they fail a lot. And we're, parents are just kids in adult bodies trying to figure it out too. And in that context, uh, that formation, if we've, heard this, if we've heard grumpy people tell these stories, or we've been shamed because we don't read enough of these stories, or this, if we have this system we've learned to argue with, instead of this story, this flow that invites us to a Jesus that we just want to pray the crowds for. Because if we had this gospel, if, if, if you're not a powerful person, if you're not a person that desires to be the most influential, powerful, looked up to person in the world, if you're one of those people, the gospels are terrifying. If you don't want to be like the groups of people described in the Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the persecuted righteousness, the gospels are horrifying. Because the Gospels are opposed to everything that a lot of people value in this world. But if you were someone that found hope in those things that Jesus did, and then you read a teaching of Jesus and you feel like running, or the Bible becomes frightening, that says more about, and there's other circumstances that impact our neurological reaction to the Bible, but one of the biggest ones is our, our, our first formation with our parents. Right? And I've literally known people that can't pray to God as a father because it triggers them to, from a trauma of, of parental abuse. And God's cool. I mean, you can address God so many different ways. He's like, I know you're talking to me, and whatever it takes, come near. So, this first formation is I've seen, is I've, I've had a number of conversations recently with people that really struggle with reading the Gospels. Now, listen, the Old Testament is so complex. 
I'm not a guy that says there's a different God, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. I'm not. There's a guy named Marcion that came up with that idea. But what I do believe about the Old Testament is there's two stories being told at the same time that were recorded, inspired by God. Have you ever noticed whenever someone does something really horrific in the Old Testament, nine times out of ten, it doesn't say, and that was really bad. After it. It was presumed that the community filled by the Spirit reading that would talk about it. And you didn't have to say that Lot's daughters getting him drunk and doing these weird things with him was bad. It was just clearly, you knew it. And the, so the Old Testament doesn't comment on itself for the most part. About 5% of it does. So when we have a prayer of someone crying out to God, say, may the children of my enemies be crushed on the rocks. It isn't the Bible saying, therefore, we should not worry about collateral damage when we go to war. And it doesn't matter if kids get destroyed when we drop a bomb indiscriminately. No, what it says is bring your most evil, dark self to Jesus. That is what. So when we read the Bible, the Old Testament is complicated. The Old Testament, we have one passage. Well, even in the first chapter, God says to Eve, and Adam, hey, don't eat this tree. Don't eat of the fruit. Eve quotes him. Shortly thereafter, he said, don't touch the tree. And we see right there is we, we, the Bible, the inspired word of God told two contrary stories in one passage. And it wasn't that the compilers of Genesis under the inspiration of God were dumb. They didn't have TV and anything else to distract them. All they had was those words and storytelling. They, they were smart. They were showing us something. And there's a teaching there that humans scramble up gods and they turned a merciful protection that god gave them into a irrational oppressive rule and so the little children in jesus listen the one thing I have, I found myself doing is that helps me to marinate myself in the Gospels in like, pro that makes, listen, I go to doctors, I have, I have clinical interventions in my life, I take medicine, I see a counselor, and I come to generations of, of, of bad depression, alright? But when I read the Gospels, Along with all the other care God's given me the privilege to receive, I'm elevated and I feel love. And I feel like after turning 50 and being exposed to this stuff starting at age four, learning the lyrics to Jesus Loves Me, it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I tried to lose my faith. That's when I was reading Nietzsche and all those guys in 1990. I guess they would call it like deconstructing now. And I ended up realizing I really love Jesus, but the church isn't a safe place. And I said, I'm not going to go to church until I would bring anyone, I, any of my friends to church. Someone dragged me to Vineyard, and I saw homeless people and people of wealth and status worshiping God together. And instead of, from the teaching, hearing all how our world, everyone in the world is bad, I heard the Sermon on the Mount preach telling me how the Holy Spirit can empower me to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I felt the pain of a medical treatment that's going to save my life. It's, I didn't feel like the grumpy Christian radio guy that's telling everyone how to parent through a cookie-cutter approach. I heard Jesus again. And I'm like, I found home. And it's so good to become, eventually become friends with that pastor 
and get, you know, work for them and see them when, behind the scenes when no one's looking and see them being hungry for Jesus the same way they are publicly. It was pretty healing. So, is the Bible, is, is marinating the world of Scripture an obligation or is it a rich meal for a hungry soul? Listen, who here likes eating the best food? Anyone foodies here? Anyone, listen, like, really, it's like, when you get your traditional Filipino cuisine, it's just like, you eat it and you're like, who can say there is no God? Or if you have good barbecue or something, you know, rich meals. Now imagine yourself that you weren't able to eat for two days because you were stoned in, and then someone brings Ray Ray's over. Are you going to have to be told to eat that? Well, unless you're a vegan. If they're vegan, imagine they bring a field of carrots and uh, horse feed. And, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm sorry. I've done my vegetarian time since it's really helped my health. So I'm not, you know, it actually might be something I have to revisit. But the idea that a rich meal isn't something we have to be guilted into eating. The, the story, at least the story of Jesus. And the more you get the story of Jesus, the more you can parse when is it God. And then when is it God inspiring people to tell us how broken people are when they describe God. When you marinate, if, if this is hard, this is a mercy that you realize this. Because I believe God's word to you and has been to me is, you think I'm just like your dad. You think I'm just like your mom. You think I'm just like your youth pastor or your caregiver. If you have a hard time going to the Gospels, God's word to you, I believe, I would, I would die for this truth, is... You, 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 this is hard for you because you think God is your dad. And it doesn't happen at a, like, a conscious level. It's just hardwired into their souls. And I believe all of us, and so this relates to, you know, I've taken class, every class on exegesis Greek, exegesis and Bible study. You know what I've learned? Understanding my whole life and listening to the story of my life with the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ around me has taught me more to read the Bible than knowing Greek and doing grammatical criticism and uh, becoming... The one thing I was really good at was doing diachronic word analysis of the Koine Greek. But the, I'll tell you, what helped me was understanding that I've been bringing trauma in my life to the Bible. Or I've been bringing a false perspective on who Jesus is from the Bible. And the best way to hide who Jesus is, is tell the story in a boring, piecemeal fashion. And now, praise Jesus, we can experience something the early church experienced. You know what that is? I don't have to read the Bible ever. I can listen to it. 90% of the followers of Christ never read a word off a page. They heard it read off a page over and over and over. And now uh, we may not have the gathering for two, three hours every Sunday where they open up the scroll and read an entire gospel at once. But we've got the Bible app on Android or whatever. We can enter it now because all of you guys have been listening to podcasts so much. We're becoming more of an oral transmission society. You know, I wasn't able to listen to podcasts and keep engaged eight years ago. Now my brain has been trained to hear the spoken word. I think, man, I'm kind of early church rocking it old school. 
And so I, I, it took me a couple months to re- listen to a gospel every day before my brain clicked to I knew what they were going to say next. I entered in the flow, and my imagination was alive most of the time. And then I never, I, since then, I haven't felt an obligation about reading the Bible, or sometimes I do about some of it. I mean, Leviticus takes some work. I have to alternate between Leviticus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But at least in the, in, if, I'm able, if I'm awake enough to see Paul related to the Gospels, but the obligation has mostly gone away for me. And this is possible for all of us. So what Paul was angry at in Galatians was people creating a picture of God and essentially, I think, using their authority and influence to traumatize people into reading and interpreting and imagining Jesus wrongly. Because if Jesus isn't the first person you run to, if Jesus is the first person you hide to, listen, when God was not fully revealed in human form, even before the fall, when Adam and Eve screwed things up, they hid from God. But when God was revealed in Jesus, the Adam and Eve who screwed up ran after Jesus. We have a revelation of Jesus. And Jesus is healed. And I'm trusting for Jesus to heal my children's nuanced misconceptions about God that are due to me. And we, I, I've spent a ton of time actually this week talking to my daughter about this, about like how there's never too much of Jesus. So, I know, I'm probably woke. So I want to read, I've not fully worked this out, I'm actually starting to listen. By the way, I'm going to read a couple ideas, and I'd love it if you guys would email me your versions of this. We can crowdsource it. I said, when you hear the tone of joy, Jesus, when you're reading him, and when you imagine the expression on the face, are you imagining a teacher with immeasurable responsibility and literally the world on his shoulders being unable to be annoyed by disruptive kids? Can you imagine Jesus always speaking the tone that the guy annoying children who disrupted his day could not annoy? He was unflappable. <laughs> I'm not there. Are you there? Um, a man who tells stories where the hero isn't the conquering uh, military leader who slays a hundred people on their own, but it's where a father who'd been humiliated by his son's rebellion, uh, who, when he sees his son in the distance and screwed up life for the family, he runs to meet him and doesn't even let the kid finish apologizing before he's hugging and crying all over him. Do you read it to that time? Do you read it through the tone of someone that cannot be annoyed by unpredictability and mess? Are you reading through the tone that someone cannot be disrupted from kindness by the unpredictable chaos of life? Can you read it through the tone of a person who reserves their vitriolic anger for the unkindness of religious people? Can you read Jesus through the tone in the face of someone who, when they get angry, it's because religious people are being mean? (sighs) 
That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. I'm still working to get this. And frankly, whatever revelation I get of this, I leak. I found out, you know, my faith isn't worth, you know, I spent years learning to intellectualize my faith. And it was interesting, around the time, before I found church again, before I started going back to church, I was accepted to two of the more prestigious seminaries for the MDiv program in the country. And I was choosing between them. And they're great. Well, one of them is a great place. The other place uh, kind of teaches that the Sermon on the Mount is just there to guilt us into knowing we need to get saved. Uh, I think the Sermon on the Mount is a Holy Spirit thing that God will build into us. But anyway, the other one was awesome. But here's the deal. It would have been treacherous for me to go into that context without understanding Jesus the way I feel like he's had the mercy to show me now. You know what I love about this picture of Jesus? We heard a couple kids share last week and other weeks who, based on the shirt, we know that's how they see Jesus. We've got kids in our church that, based on them coming forward, there's a few of them, some of them, that know this truth. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, give me their soul. Because unless you enter the kingdom of God, and by the way, enter the kingdom of God, if Jesus wanted to say, unless you want to get saved from the possibility of going to hell, and when you die, that you will go to heaven and not hell, you must do this. He doesn't say that. Because the kingdom of God is that, that niche thing. The kingdom of God is around us. It's above us. It's below us. It's within us. It's still to come, but it's come, it's come to us in the past. The kingdom of God was present in Jesus, but people still die of cancer now, and one day there will be perfection. The kingdom of God is this swirl. It's like, imagine two dimensions that are oscillating between each other. It's the same planet, but we see beauty and we see atrocity. Because the kingdom of God is breaking through the thin spaces where the Holy Spirit is present. And we can see atrocities and healing. I've seen people healed of cancer. I've watched three women who were uh, perpetually having their period and were deeply sick and anemic with paralyzed arms get healed before my eyes. And I've buried so many loved ones, including my dad, what seems very recently. The kingdom of God is this weird flickering thing that eventually the light's going to stay on. It's that entering the kingdom is getting to play. Entering the kingdom is being welcomed into the play, being a four-year-old that gets the doors open at close side and you get to go to the play area. Entering the kingdom, cannot enter the kingdom, is cannot go to where Jesus is playing all the games because that's the last place you'd want to be. If we can't have... If we can accept God's healing restoration and we become promulgators, can we have the worship team come up? If we become promulgators of this false picture of Jesus, we, we don't, it's not that God's saying, you can't play with me. We can't enter the kingdom because it's gross. We can't enter the kingdom because we look down on the kingdom. You know, how many verses in the Psalms are about the heart of worship? I think there's one is that excellently, you know, you, and praise the Lord in excellence. And I've heard so many people say, let's do everything with excellence. I'm, okay, can you define excellence? Ex oh, oh uh, wow, Paul defined excellence. He said, now let me show you the most excellent way. Love is patient, love is kind. 
That's excellence in the kingdom. Okay. Can we stand? So I woke up and I, I couldn't talk for a while. I just felt so terrified. And I started to share with Adrian. And she put on the Sarah Groves album of hymns that is probably one of my favorite albums to meditate pray I've ever listened to. And she does a version of one of my favorite old hymns written by a woman, Louisa Steed, who was born in 1850. And I want to read the words and I want to tell you something. It's a t- I want to read a couple of Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to even trust him more. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I proved him over and over. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood. Oh, in simple faith to plunge me, neat the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self-decease, just from Jesus simply taking life, rest, joy, peace. You know when uh, Louisa wrote that? is when her childhood sweetheart, who she did ministry with and missions work with, saw a young boy drowning and he ran out into the ocean. I believe it was the... uh, Atlantic Ocean to try to save his kid and he died. She watched him die, watched his dead body wash ashore. And in her grief, she wrote this song because she got it. And I've not, I, I don't buy into the prosperity gospel that we're going to be invincible from pain. In fact, if you believe this picture of Jesus, you're going to weep and grieve like Jesus weeped. And, you know, Jesus sees the hordes of Jerusalem who don't get the story and he doesn't judge him he just breaks down in tears you will become you will hurt so much more if you enter into the love of christ and you will be alive in a way that so jesus that jesus i've been talking about he was among friends and one enemy he was being betrayed and he was celebrating this jewish feast called the passover which was a, a, a visceral and tactile memorial to the fact you were slaves and God set you free. And it was for one people group to observe, Jewish people. And Jesus celebrated this, this, this basically kind of a drinking party in a way because they would sing songs and pass the cup and eat the matzah bread, the unleavened bread. And he said, okay, this, Jesus remixed it where actually Jesus took actually told them the story behind the story and said this is my body and it's going to be broken for you do this in remembrance of me let's take it he took the cup he said this is my blood and it's spilled for you every time you take a drink remember that i love you so much i would spit i i would not stop from spilling for you Now, I'd like everyone, if you could, to close your eyes, if you like. I mean, just, I'm trying to make this place kind of faux private. And if you want to, I, I like 
sometimes I can't pray with my words. Sometimes I pray with my body. One way I pray with my body is I hold open hands. Because to me, it's a nonverbal prayer of, Jesus, I need something bad. So if you want to hold your hands out, that's fine. Jesus, restore our imagination. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come right now. Holy Spirit, come. God, I recognize that evil, the forces of evil, systemic, personal, and supernatural evil is all teamed up to keep this story from us. And I ask the powerful Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to break through the false story. Lord, right now I ask you to give us a picture of your face looking at us with affection. Friends, imagine yourself as a poopy, smelly kid whose parent is trying to get you FaceTime with Jesus. And you get up there and then these big, giant, grumpy, bearded men start to yell at your parents and you. Imagine yourself being that kid, yourself as a kid, where all these grumpy church folks are giving you a hard time. Then I want to... uh, I want you to imagine Jesus kind of uh, stepping down from whatever podium he's at or something and kind of pushing those guys out, looking and goes, I'll deal with you later. <laughs> you know, going to the kids, getting down on his knees so he can look at you in your eye, and you can know immediately that this guy, I just made their day. Obviously, these kids were loved by their mommies and daddies or... Mom wouldn't have braved the wrath of the disciples to bring them there, so they knew what love was. They had loving parents. But imagine being a child who was so dearly loved, more loved than maybe most of us here. And you're looking at Jesus, and in a second, you see his eyes, and you see, this person loves me even more than my mom. This person loves me even more than my dad. And you just know it in your heart. That's Jesus. No one deconstructs from that picture of Jesus. They deconstruct from the lies of the enemy. And I'm telling you, reconstructing is just a matter of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, cement this image in our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Rewrite our stories. God, I'm not an expert at this, but I know... For any of us, we have to continually encounter this picture of you. Every day for about 24 weeks, every day, several times a day, before our defaults change in our brain. Lord, change our defaults to love. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray. Friends, as we worship, let's prayer people get to the sides, God. Listen, when people pray for you, they're not praying for you because they're awesome and cool and powerful. They're praying for you because they've experienced Jesus. And something happens when two broken people take turns praying for each other. That picture of the loving Jesus, it gets clearer. Lord bless you guys. Love you so much.